Let's go into our Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel according to Mark chapter 8. And let me say, before we actually begin with the message, whether you completely understand this or not, I wouldn't know. But the only thing that's keeping evil from truly overcoming is right here. That's it. This book. And I don't mean the book on a shelf in a bookstore or even in your home. I mean it being proclaimed and exclaimed and shared and so on. Now, in Mark chapter 8, begin reading at verse 34. The Bible says, And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. Whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Now verse 38 says, Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The title of this message is, I'd rather be saved than be president, in part inspired by that dark and somewhat concerning, disconcerting stage that our president spoke from just a few nights ago. The title comes from that in part. The other part comes from something that was stated by Henry Clay, who spent 40 years in both the House of Representatives as senator back in the early 19th century. He ran for president three times, lost three times, and sometimes by a very slim margin, like 5,000 votes. On his third run, some of his friends and his party, I suppose, were counseling him to drop his stand on the abolition of slavery. That you're going to lose the election is what they were telling Henry Clay. And that's when Henry Clay responded, I'd rather be right than be president. Now, if you look up Henry Clay and study him, it gets complex about these views on slavery when they were actually owning slaves. But regardless, he was an abolitionist. And what you need to know, and people need to know, so was Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, read their biographies. But I'm not here to talk about that today. I'm here to say to you, it's better to be saved than to be the president of the United States or the CEO of a large company, and not that you can't be both, but what we know in the scriptures that it's not ordinarily so. I'd rather be saved than be president. Just like Henry Clay said, I'd rather be right than be president. And by the way, so did George M. Cohan, 1937, when he wrote a play that was satirical and not really along the same lines as serious as Henry Clay's statement, but it was the same title, I'd rather be right than be president. But Henry Clay was the one that said that. I would rather be right in what I believe than be the president when his election was on the line. I'd rather be right. That's a person who has got character, conviction, and would rather stick to his principles than be popular or be president and have power and what have you. And I know that you understand that we don't have that today any longer in the country. I'm not saying everybody in government is crooked. They're not. But many of them will sacrifice anything just to get that position. And I won't go through all the dynamics today of um, who says what and when they said it and then contradict themselves. But I will say this. When President Biden spoke, and I'll give you some quotes in just a minute, the very next day he said, come on, I didn't say that. I mean, it's, it's a type of sickness. I'm not sure if it's his or he thinks that we have it. In any case, I'd rather be saved than be president, that's for sure. And we'll get back to this text in just a second, but I want to give you something else that Henry Clay said. Listen, this is a former government official speaking. Patriotism, Clay said, which catching its inspiration from the immortal God, patriotism comes from God, prompts to deeds of self-sacrifice, of valor, of devotion, and of death itself. That is public virtue. That is the noblest, the sublimest of all public virtues. This is a man of character. This is a man who would willingly and absolutely give his time to hand out some gospel tracts at a festival in a city like this. And you know, my friends, it's time we do something. And so, just a few nights ago, our president gets up and tells the whole world that the real problem in America is Americans. Well, not all Americans. 
just the ones that supported Donald Trump. And to be clear about this, someone said to me about being a follower of Donald Trump, I I'm not a follower of Donald Trump, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Amen. But since there's no ambiguity about who I voted for, I voted for Donald Trump in 2016, in 2020, and if he runs in 2024, and there's not a better candidate that matches himself to this Bible, I'll vote for him again. We've been pushed around long enough by people whose agenda is not just un-American, that's one thing, it's ungodly. Any political party who backs up the fact that you could take a child's life minutes before they're born is evil. There's only a word for it. And we could go on those lines, but I won't. Let me just give you a couple of quotes from his speech. We'll just say M-A-G-A, MAGA, Make America Great Again, the Trump slogan. MAGA Republicans do not respect the Constitution, he said. What he said. They do not believe in the rule of law. They do not recognize the will of the people. Now remember, he ran on the platform of several issues. One of them is he was going to unite the country. Well, I'll tell you one thing. I've been apolitical, not unpolitical. I've been apolitical all my life, but I'm not any longer. If you can get somebody like me to start speaking on politics, and I, I probably won't do it on social media because it's usually just a colossal waste of time because you're speaking to people who have no control over their emotions and some who have no control over their intellect. But the time has come that we must do something because what we're facing is not just un-American, it's evil, period. The president went on to say MAGA forces are determined to take this country backwards. And that I would agree, at least from my point of view, we need to go to the old paths from this book right here. Because we're not in the old paths any longer. In the church, not in the country, in the church. We're not in the old paths. Let me just say something real quick about old paths. We can say a lot. When I went to church as a kid, you sat with your family. Nobody offered to say, okay, we'll, you know, we'll teach the kids, which we do here. We have done all of my ministry, and it's a good thing. I'm just saying. And the services back in the day were long, and you sat with your family. And then uh, we can go along those lines, but maybe you just get the picture. You know, I really struggled over this sermon. I really did. I said, I, I need like three hours to just talk about this stuff. I really prayed quite a lot. Let me just finish with this statement from our president. Make America great. Forces are determined to take this country backwards. Backwards to an America where there is no right to choose, no right to privacy, no right to contraception, no right to marry who you love. They promote authoritarian leaders and they fan the flames of political violence. You know, when you hear a president speak, especially in the world in which we live right now, you expect him to talk about the problems we're having with China, whom he didn't mention at all, or the problems we're having with Russia, who's at war with taking over the Ukraine, who he didn't mention at all. But it was 13 times he mentioned Americans who voted for Donald Trump. You can read the speech for yourself. I've read parts of it. I've read most of it. And it's scary to see how identical it is to statements made by Heinrich Himmler, Adolf Hitler, al-Assad, and others. It's basically saying, you will do what we tell you to do, because that's what we've been hearing. That's what we've been seeing for the last few years and all the violence. And we're the ones behind the violence? We're the ones fanning the flames of political violence? Only some mindless individual would believe that. I mean, the whole narrative shoved down our throats for years now is simply evil. Now is the time for action. And when we read Jesus' words, verse 34, he says, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself. That's what it's going to take. Because we have, not you, but just sometimes in general, we think all we need is to wave that flag and that we have rights and nobody can take them away. And that's simply not true. If God had not provided and protected this country up to this point, we'd already be sunk in slavery. Not the slavery that we hear about so much. We would be slaves to an authoritarian despot or dictator. It's going to take self-denial. I'll go back to Robert E. Lee for a moment. Robert Lee was once asked by a mom, brought her little son along with her. Says, you know, I want my son to grow up to be a man. And she admired the general. And she asked him, what should I teach him? And this was the response of Robert E. Lee. He said, teach him to deny himself. We're used to denying others, especially when it comes to working for the Lord. Notice I didn't say church work. We need help with this. We need help with that. Where's the people that prayer? And this is what we're getting as a result of a lack of prayer. I'll just point to that empty screen. That's what we're getting as a result of prayerlessness in churches. That's what we're getting as a result of a lack of true biblical teaching by people who promote this self-esteem pop psychology from pulpits that have tens and tens of thousands of people flocking. Where the music is great, speaking musically, 
And the words sometimes are really good, but we're not making true converts. That's a fact. We're not making people who are actually following Christ. That's a fact. And if you truly love God, that would be the ultimate, right? If we believe in the motto of our country, in God we trust, then you can no longer deny God to use your life as he sees fit. We sang, he just sang it a moment ago. Not as you see fit, as he sees fit. I don't like the way my life has turned out. I'll be honest with you, because it's not what I wanted. But God has reassured me on many occasions, including recently, as recent as this week, that I'm turning out the way he wants me. So I submit and I embrace it and I say, okay. I'll embrace the difficulty. I'll embrace the uh, whatever I have to go through. And that's what you need to embrace too. You need to embrace this is what God is doing in your life because he's going to make you to be what he wants you to be. Or he's not going to have any part of it. And that's a fact. Some years ago, up on the hill, that's how we refer to the building in between this building and the other building and that building now. Up on the hill many, many years ago, I rarely remember sermon titles. There's just a few that I actually remember the title I gave it. But I preached a sermon many, many years ago called The God Problem. And it was about America. So we're going back almost 30 years ago. And I remind you, though I've told you this recently, I remind you that the problem that we have in America is we have a problem with God. And keep in mind that God sets up as authorities over every country, whether they're good or they're evil, God's behind it. How do I know that? in the book. God guides his own universe. And if you don't like the government that we have, whether we're the government of the people, by the people, and for the people, but remember the government of the people, by the people, and for the people are only as good as the people. If we allow evil to just walk without being challenged, worse is if we're actually part of the evil. And then we say, hey, God bless America. How can he? I still sing the song, and I'm going to still sing the song, but many times when I've sang the song or thought of the song, I said, but God, I know you can't bless, but you already said you wouldn't bless. And we need to wake up to that fact. The answer is not in politics. It's here. It's in this book. This book must be preached. It must be proclaimed. And we must see people coming to Christ. And they must understand that when you come to Christ, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Follow Jesus. So I'd rather be saved than be president, that's for sure. But I gave this to you just recently, and I want to just read it once, one more time, because the onus for people like myself who have a pulpit and a position in the church, and mine is as a pastor, you also have a burden that's on you. And again, I say this to you, I truly wrestled with this message. Sometimes I wrestle intellectually, just, you know, what to include and what to exclude, and of course the Holy Spirit shows up and things come in that weren't in my notes. And I don't even use my notes much except when I have quotes like I do today, because I don't memorize them. And I wrestle with this. I wrestle with the hour of history we're in and the seeming complacency of professing Christians. And let me tell you something. Don't talk about the rapture as a way of excusing the fact that you're not doing anything for Christ right now. I still believe the rapture will precede the great tribulation. But I've been humble enough to tell you that I could be wrong. And you could be wrong. But it don't matter because either way, we are to be occupying until he comes. And that word occupy means to be doing his business. So I gave this to you a few weeks ago. It's from a sermon called The Decay of Conscience by Charles Finney in 1873, December the 4th. He wrote these words. Brethren, our preaching, so he's talking to preachers, our preaching will bear its legitimate fruits. There's a saying in my trade, you get what you preach. So if every week I kept preaching to you about money, 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 eventually the money will come in. And I won't be driving down this short little hill in my car. I'll be flying down the hill in my Learjet. And it's true, you get what you preach. And that's what he meant here. Brethren, our preaching will bear its legitimate fruits. So Finney said to preachers, if immorality prevails in the land, the fault is ours in a great degree. If there is a decay of conscience, the pulpit is responsible for it. If the public press lacks moral discrimination, the pulpit is responsible for it. If the church is degenerate and worldly, the pulpit is responsible for it. If the world loses its interest in religion, and that means Christianity and the Bible, the pulpit is responsible for it. Listen, if Satan rules in our halls of legislation, I just showed you a picture. That was pretty much, if I said nothing about that picture, you get the picture. And Finney said this in 1873, 
If Satan rules in our halls of legislation, the pulpit is responsible for it. If our politics become so corrupt that the very foundations of our government are ready to fall away, the pulpit is responsible for it. That means people like me have the ultimate responsibility. I share with you the New York State Constitution, the original Constitution, I think it was 1774, very close to the Declaration of Independence and all that. Ministers were forbidden to hold public office. The reason being is that their jobs were too important. Now, we don't hold to that now, and it's a different day, but I actually believe that. You can't devote yourself to being a preacher and to being a politician at the same time. You could be a Christian who's a politician, and we certainly need them, real Christians. And certainly to be a preacher, a real preacher. You can't be both. And our founders knew that here in New York State. They knew that from the very beginning. It wasn't that they were saying there's separation. They weren't saying that. They were saying that the job of the preacher is too important. We need this to hold our republic together. That's what they were saying. And so, yeah, the responsibility is largely on your pastor and people like him all over the world. But it does not end there. Finney also wrote this. Everyone has the great responsibility devolved upon him or her to win as many souls as possible to Christ. Now, the pulpit has just told you, you are responsible to win people to Christ. You are responsible to sign that sheet and get out to that festival and win souls to Christ. Now, you share a gospel track or whatever it may be, then it's between them and God. That we don't control. Every single one of you sitting here, you say, oh, I'm having a hard time. That's an excuse. We are to serve Christ no matter what. We are to do our duty no matter how we feel, no matter what we're going through. It does not matter. We must do our job as Christians, as parents. We must toe the line. We must do it. Or, worst is, people will not see God in heaven. That's what the book says. And the second, we'll lose our country the way we know it. We're going to lose it. Everyone has the great responsibility devolved upon him or her to win as many souls as possible to Christ. This is the great privilege and great duty of all the disciples of Christ. He will go on from there to say that there's many departments in the government and in the world and so on. But everybody has it upon them as a God-given responsibility to win as many souls to Christ as possible. And I say this to you not in a rude way or to be rude. But can you name quickly in your mind right now the people you've led to Christ, personally led to Christ? You see, as a pastor, I do all this. Through, we have radio, we have television, we have all these different things. And, of course, there's been influence there. But I've won people to Christ just one-on-one. And I still keep in touch with them. You know why? Because that's my duty as a Christian. My duty as a pastor is to preach the word. But we all have the duty to reach and win souls. It's interesting to me, and it's not really all that funny, to hear the excuses people have. There is no excuse. If you live on planet Earth, you're around somebody, and your duty is to win them to Christ. That's why I exhort you. God has put the tools in our hands. Social media is a mess, but it's very, very useful for a lot of things, I suppose. But for you and me, it's for, it's for preaching the gospel. If you don't know how to make a meme, they're very easy to make, then borrow one. Copy and paste Bible verses. Be available for people. You have no idea how many people contact me in private because of something I wrote on the social media. I don't mean haters. I mean people who are legitimately struggling. I give them Christ. And by the way, it's really great when I get feedback from the same people who live in different states and a couple of them in a different country. I say, boy, pastor, you've really helped me. I've never even met them. Now, some I have, but most I haven't. And have them say to me, I'm really making great advances. What about you? Your duty, your responsibility is to win souls to Christ. You say, well, I'm getting up on age. And so am I. I've done this for a long, long time. You don't think I don't get up some morning and say, I don't want to do this anymore? Tired of being accountable to people and everybody looking for me and pulling on me? I am, but I'll do my duty. If Jack LaLanne could be doing a two-hour workout with pneumonia when he's 96 years old the day before he died, then I could preach the gospel to the day I go home. Number one, the problem we have in America is not with Democrats. It's not with Make America Great Again Republicans. It's not with Independent. It's with God. The problem we have is with God, and the solution is in the pulpits of America. Number two is the cost. Let's read this again. If your Bible is still open, whoever will come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. I'm going to make a point of this. 
Jesus never told us to follow a denomination. I was part of, well, I was part of two denominations up until I was in my 50s. But the things are so chaotic right now and crazy, I just decided to do what we do here. We're just an independent church. We're not independent of the church of Jesus Christ. We're just independent in the fact that we're not part of a denomination. But I will say this. Jesus never asked us to follow a group of any people. He asked us to follow him or told us to follow, commanded us to follow him. And so now I want to talk to you about the cost of the God problem. The cost of the God problem is the cost of being a true disciple. Emphasis on true. Many of us have people who ask us, do you go to church? And the answer is, yeah, I go to church. That's not the same as being a Christian. Someone asks you, do you believe in God? And you say, yes, that's not the same as being a Christian. And we can go right down there. Years ago, you say to somebody, you must be born again. They say, I'm, I'm a Catholic. That's not the same as being a Christian. I'm a Pentecostal. Not the same as being a Christian. It's when we put these verses that we read for our introduction to work that we're actually following Christ. Now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, many of you are familiar with his name. He was a German theologian and he was a pastor. And when Hitler rose to power, he opposed the Nazi party. But you see, he didn't just oppose it from the pulpit. I mean, originally he did. But when God gave Germany over to his judgment, he still stood in the right and still opposed the evil that was existing in Germany through the Nazi party and Hitler. What did he earn for that? It wasn't a Learjet. Spent the rest of his life in labor camp, and then finally he was hung. But before that, he wrote a book, he wrote memoirs, and one of them is called The Cost of Discipleship. And even though I don't agree with much of Bonhoeffer's actual theology, I cannot deny that this man was definitely committed. And he gave his life for the words I'm about to read to you. Bonhoeffer wrote these words, Instead of following Christ, let the Christian enjoy the consolation of his grace. This is what we mean by cheap grace. Let me read that again. Instead of following Christ, let the Christian enjoy the consolations of his grace. This is what we mean by cheap grace. And keep in mind the setting in which this man is writing. The Nazi party is in control. To oppose the Nazi party. Well, first of all, if you're a Jew, you're already in opposition. It doesn't matter where you stand. But then there were Germans and other people as well that opposed the Nazis. So keep that in mind as I read this to you one more time. Instead of following Christ, let the Christian enjoy the consolations of his grace. This is what we mean by cheap grace. The grace which amounts to the justification of sin without justification of the repentant sinner who departs from sin and from whom sin departs. Cheap grace is the kind of forgiveness of sin which frees us from the toils of sin. I mean struggling against it. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. That's an interesting statement. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. That's an engaging statement. Grace without Jesus Christ, well, that's impossible. But what he's talking about is that it's an imitation grace. It's not a real grace. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hid in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It's the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. Remember that in the Sermon on the Mount? It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows it. Leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. The gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is a grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. 
He said that costly grace costs a man his life. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. The problem we have in America is God's problem. Not going to be solved with guns. Look at the American Civil War. How many people died in the American Civil War? Do you know? Well, the old figures, old figures were 600, 500, half a million. Now as they, you know, we have more technology and whatever. It's getting closer to a million people. That includes civilians. And by the way, Henry Clay was trying to prevent that, which obviously wasn't successful. Because once God has determined a judgment, or let's say a blessing, either way, no one can withstand it. Like I shared with you before, we reversed the words of this scripture verse. If God before us, who can be against us? Yeah. Well, if God is against us, who can be for us? We're going to vote our way in? God says, no, I don't think so. No. No, you won't. You won't be able to vote your way out of this. Turn to me, he says in Isaiah, and be saved. Turn to me and be saved. Now listen to this logic. I've shared this with people who were very political. And uh, we have to do this, that, and the other thing. And I said, well, this is how I think of it. If we are, and we certainly were founded this way, if we are a government of the people, by the people, and for the people, then our government is only as good as the people. Make sense? Okay. If Christians did their job at winning souls so that at very minimum right and wrong was known, we'd have a better government. And you know what? At least in my mind, it's just that simple. But since the lines have been so blurred between what's right and what's wrong, that Americans, uh, I won't say half the country, but uh, millions, tens of millions of Americans are defending a woman's right to health care. If you said to me, do you defend a person's right to health care? I'd ask you, what do you mean by a right to health care? And uh, certainly health is part of the gospel. But that's a euphemism for abortion. That means you could take the baby out anytime you want. And uh, I remember in Virginia some years ago, I don't know how far it's gotten now, even after the baby was born, if all of a sudden the mother just decided, no, no, they snuffed the life out of that baby. When a country reaches this point, and we have a president defending it, and putting up a stage like that, do you understand? We're in deep trouble. And you say, well, we're going to march out, and I'm loading my 9 millimeter. You better forget about 9 millimeter. guy told me about, he was, I don't know how many, tens of thousands of 9 millimeter rounds he has. I said, well, why do you need all those rounds? For the revolution, or the war. I laughed. I said, are you crazy? The U.S. government and military has tanks. And surface-to-air missiles, and you're going to, what, shoot your 9 millimeter handgun? It's absurd. It's absurd. But you know what? Even if we were an army of millions of people, we watched God defeat those same armies when they came up against Israel when God was on their side. The point being is that God controls what happens. And it's just that simple. We have a God problem, and the cost of serving the Lord and getting his blessing again so that we can, with good conscience, sing, God bless America, God help us, and so on is the power of prayer. The power of prayer. Edward McKendry Bounds was a a lawyer, and he was found in the company of about 250 other people who was thought to be uh, sympathetic to uh, confederacy, to, you know, the Civil War, to the south side of the Civil War. And so he was put in jail because the Union here in the north said to them there in the South, you're going to pay $500 to take this pledge and a vow and so on. He thought no American should have to take that type of a pledge. They shouldn't have to take that type of a vow. Plus, he didn't have the $500. Now, once again, I'm presenting to you men, obviously there's women, of character who would rather lose something than deny the principles either of Scripture or their own principles. I don't think I'm stretching the point too much to say we don't have enough of those people now. We have people that will sell out for anything. Just, you know, all we'd have to do uh, on a hot summer day here is turn off the air conditioner, which I'm not for. (laughs) That's all we'd have to do. That's all we'd have to do. And tell people we no longer have the air conditioner on. It's going to be hot in here. I'm telling you now, they would not go back. They'd go to the church that's air conditioned. Wouldn't matter what we're preaching and teaching. Because that's how low we've sunk. In the days of Jeremiah, the people said, give us soft things. Give us easy things. That's what we want to hear. And God, not only in Jeremiah, but after the captivity, through Ezekiel, said, I didn't send these preachers. I didn't send these prophets. They're preaching out of their own heart. What am I saying? I'm saying that we are now an undisciplined group of American people. We don't do the things that were just done some of it in my lifetime. The power of prayer 
This would change this thing. There has never been a revival of Jesus Christ's church in 2,000 years without people of prayer. Praying. Praying without ceasing. And Edward McKendry Bounds was a man of character who actually went to jail because he wouldn't take the vow. He said an American shouldn't have to do that. But then later on he found himself in the war and then he became a pastor. His books are absolutely at the top of the list for books on prayer. Eleven books he wrote and nine of them were never published while he was alive. They were published posthumously. But listen to what he had to say on prayer. And this was written in 1865, well, no, well, the mid-1800s. Yet it sounds like it was written just today. Listen very carefully. We, the church, are constantly on a stretch, if not on a strain, to devise new methods, precisely what we got today. New plans, new organizations to advance the church and secure enlargement and efficiency for the gospel. You see what he's saying? Men are sitting down saying, we could do this better. There's a way to draw people. The only way that I know in this book to draw people is by preaching and prayer. Sharing the gospel with people. By the work of the Holy Spirit whom we can't see and we can't control. Here's a preacher in the Bible school I heard about. Woman teacher has in her notes this, that, whatever subject she was teaching on. And then in parentheses it said, Holy Spirit, move here. What kind of an imagination is this? This is a Bible teacher. Holy Spirit, move here. And what, God's not? I said, okay, fine. Just let me know when you need me and I'll show up. When you're done with your notes. This is the type of ludicrous thing that, that is happening when we send our children off to Christian schools. Holy Spirit, move here. We don't control the Holy Spirit. He controls us. Amen. Well, that's what God's plan is anyway. Let me say it one more time and I'll go through the whole thing. We are constantly on the stretch, if not on the strain, to devise new methods, new plans, new organizations to advance the church. Remember, this is the middle of the 19th century. And secure enlargement and efficiency for the gospel. This trend of the day has a tendency to lose sight of the man or sink the man in the plan or organization. God's plan is to make much of the man. Far more of him than of anything else. Men, now that's generic. Men are God's method. The church is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. Parenthesis here. So when we're singing this song, that he can make me what he wants me to be, that's what he was talking about. He's not talking about the plans that we have here at this local church, or the one behind us, or the one that's over there, or the one that's over there. Because what I'm watching, what I'm observing, is not what I've read in history, when God really moves. And as our elder said before, during the announcements, it will be more horrible then we could imagine if we don't do something now with Christ inside the church. And now I'm talking to you about prayer. Again, the church is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. Remember in John chapter 1, Bounds quotes it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The dispensation that heralded and prepared the way for Christ was bound up in that man, John. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. The world's salvation comes out of the cradled son. It was a man, Jesus. When Paul appeals to the personal character of the men who rooted the gospel in the world, he solves the mystery of their success. It was them. It was the Isaiahs who said, here am I. He didn't say, God, here's my plan. People want to hear the music differently. Shake my head. The world's salvation comes out of that cradled son. Paul appeals to the personal character of the men who rooted in the gospel in the world. He solves the mystery of their success. The glory and efficiency of the gospel is staked on the men who proclaim it. It's staked on the men who proclaim it. When God declares that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of those whose heart is perfect towards him, he declares the necessity of men and his dependence on them as a channel through which to exert his power upon the world. Dependent upon the man, upon the woman. This vital, urgent truth is one that this age of machinery is apt to forget. The forgetting of it is as baneful on the work of God as would be the striking of the sun from his sphere. Darkness, confusion, and death would ensue. What the church needs today is not more machinery or better, 
not new organizations or more and novel methods, but men whom the Holy Ghost can use, men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. The Holy Ghost does not flow through methods, but through men. He does not come on machinery, but on men. He does not anoint plans, but men, men of prayer. I was in the middle of the 19th century, but there was never something, more, I believe, more apropos than it is right now. And if you were in my business, as long as I've been in my business, you would know what this man's talking about. I'm done with the seminars, haven't gone in years, not planning to go. I still have books that I'm going to get ready to throw out about how to do this and how to do that. Because as a young pastor, you're told, you should go here, this is all great. But I started out by myself. As you know, I was saved in my bedroom, by myself. When God's call came upon my life, I was by myself. And I began to read the Bible by myself. And I prayed a lot, all alone. And 45 years later, I'm sitting in meetings after meetings some years back when I went to them. I'm not going anymore, as I just said. What we need to do here, we need, I was at a television station. I was on the sounding board. They're talking about how to reach the people. And a friend of mine, he was a good man, a good friend of mine, he says, what if we just take a survey to see what the Christians want to see on television? And I said, what if we do something different? What do you say, Pastor Ray? I said, what if we actually pray and see what God wants to do with this television station? Which, by the way, failed ultimately. And see what God wants to do with this television station. And if nobody ever watches the TV, at least we have a clear conscience before God. And it still failed anyway. They didn't sound out the survey. But people were always coming to me and saying, boy, where do you come up with these things? So I got it from the Bible. In the second chapter of Acts, well, the first chapter, Jesus says, now don't leave here until you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't go anywhere. And now, this didn't happen, but one of the apostles said, but hey, we know everything. And we were there. We're good. We don't need the Holy Spirit. But they didn't say that. But that's what we have today. I'm not saying it's even being done on purpose. People get together, the pastor and his board and his deacons and his elders, and now we don't even have senior pastors anymore. He is the lead pastor. So if you're leading, then you must be leading somebody. And so they sit around and they come up with all these schemes. But Bounds was right. God doesn't anoint schemes and plans and machinery. He anoints men and women. Men and women filled with the Holy Spirit. That means you've got to live out all the time. That's what the text says. That's what Jesus said. People want the anointing. They don't want the price of the anointing. If you've been around some of the good preachers that I've been around and have been personal friends with them, when I saw the price that they were paying for what was clearly the anointing of the Holy Spirit, it makes you think twice. But if you're a man or woman, brother or sister that's truly principled, then you pay the price. Because at the end of the line, your ticket's going to be punched. And you're getting on a train that's going one direction or the other. So I decided to pay the price. I told you I don't like the way my life has turned out. It didn't turn out the way, A, I thought it would, and B, others told me it would. I see, someone said to me once in a prayer meeting, of all things, I see you with your guitar and long hair. Now, I'm already in my 40s. The tide is going out. I see you with your guitar and long hair and sandals walking around. Number one, I hate sandals. I truly do. I I have to wear flip-flops, like something on my feet. But a toe that's been run over... By a lawnmower, that's on this side. Another toe that's broke, they're pointing in the opposite directions. I don't want to wear sandals. <laughs> and you hear all this nonsense. Nonsense. What God does is he respects his word. He honors his word. And believe me, brothers and sisters, is a high price for that. But we must be willing to pay that price. That's just an introduction. That's just a dress rehearsal for God to help us Because some of us in this room, starting with myself, are old enough to say, you know what, what do I care? Like Hezekiah said, it won't be seen in my day, but it will be seen in my children's day and in my grandchildren's day. And I cannot look at them in good conscience to think I did not do my duty. Whatever they think of me now, whatever my family thinks of me now, I don't care about that. I just don't want my hands to have blood on them. I want to be able to wash them. As God told Ezekiel, if a wicked man is sinning in his wickedness, he'll definitely die in his wickedness. But I hold you responsible because you didn't warn him. And then the same with the righteous. If a righteous man turns from his righteousness, then the wicked man can turn to the righteous life and so on. And what did God use? Read it. Here, look at Amos, Hosea, Ezekiel. These are all men, not plans. These are all people. Ladies, if you think I'm discriminating, then there's Deborah. And there's Esther. 
men and women, people who have names and addresses and lives and a beating heart. That's what God anoints. And that's the only way the problem that America has is going to be solved. It's only going to be solved when men and women are filled with the Holy Spirit, the real Holy Spirit, the one that this book says, come and follow me. Deny yourself. Deny your feelings. Deny your comfort zone. Stop becoming so narcissistic that the only thing you could ever talk about is yourself and your life and your problems. Exalt Christ. My friends, this is the only answer. You have my permission to write to me. You do some research and say, you're wrong. There is another answer. There's another way to solve America's problem. I will entertain it. I will intellectually entertain it and give you an answer back. But I'm telling you, according to this book, there's only one solution. It's God. And the only thing problematic about that is the cost. The personal cost. The personal cost. God help us. God help us. We need men and women of prayer. I'm telling you, I know when someone's praying for me. It happened to me yesterday when I was working on this message. All of a sudden, I feel like I'm being lifted up. And I know the Holy Spirit, yes, but I know someone at that moment is praying for me. Because sometimes the thoughts are coming to me so quickly on a message, and I usually wrestle with these messages all the time. And I always pray this way. And I did this morning before I came out here. God, I need you. I don't know what to say. I could give you quotes, and I can give you a lot of things, but God doesn't anoint quotes. He anoints the man. He anoints the woman. He anoints the person. When we're going to win people to Christ, it's not going to be simply with a gospel track. It's going to be by the power of the Holy Spirit anointing the words that he himself even wrote in the Bible. But understand, and I didn't say it, Jesus did, the cost is high. It's going to cost you your life. And I don't mean a death camp like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It means you're going to have to live it all day long and every day. It means you're going to have to be only one person in life and not three different personalities It means people at work are going to recognize you as one of them kind of Christians. There's only one kind of Christian. That's the one that Jesus defines. And they will know. So let me finish today with the American Christian. There's people who have been watching us from all over the world. Nairobi, Kenya, and uh, Uganda, and uh, all over now. As the gospel is going out to the whole world. And Jesus said, then the end shall come. Which is good news for us that trust in Christ. Or I should say it's good news for you that trust in Christ, whoever you may be. Not good news for the rest of the world. Let me say one more thing about parenting. You may think that this is arrogance, but it's not. And I'm not a bully, and I'm not a dictator. But I have never been concerned about what even my own family thinks of me. Because I know at the end I have to give an account to Christ. I've done my best as a father. I've done my best as a husband. And I've done my best as a pastor. And after that, there's nothing else I can do. People like me. People dislike me. I don't care. The only thing I care about is the favor of God. If God approves, because I'm being conformed to his will, which we sang earlier, then that's the only thing that concerns me. And once again, I say it to you a third time. (laughs) My life didn't turn out the way I thought it would. The way I pictured the church, not just this one, but, you know, in my position, it didn't turn out the way I thought it would. But neither did Job's life. And he was always saying, blessed be the name of the Lord. Do you have a problem today? If you don't have a problem, there's something wrong. You're not even human. You have a problem today? Are you still able to say, Lord, I bless your name. I praise your name. Jacob Jacob wrestled with God. And Jacob wouldn't let go of God. And the price on that end was a a habitual limp. So that the Israelites wouldn't eat the sinew, the marrow of a bone. Because of what happened with Jacob when his name was changed from Jacob to Israel. He had a reminder, and so did everybody else when they saw him. Paul the Apostle said, I have the marks of Christ in my body. Let no man trouble me anymore. Don't trouble me. I've paid the price. That's what Paul was saying. And Jacob, now Israel, he limped his whole life. Because that's the price of real faith. He wrestled with an angel. He said, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. I'm not letting you go until you anoint me. I'm not letting go of you until you use me for your honor and for your glory. And God is always asking us, at least the way I see it. You're always coming to a crossroads. That's the way I see it. I'm always coming, I'm always coming to a crossroad where I could take the easier route or keep on the one I'm on. And every time I'm at that crossroad, it could happen twice in one week and not for six months later, I have to make a decision. Do I really want to keep up with this? Do I really want to do this? Then I say, you know what? Yeah. I started with Jesus. 
I've got Jesus now. I think I'll finish with Jesus. I finish with this. The American Christian. And there's much to say here and I ran out of time. One of my go-to people for uh, outsider's view of America in, again, the 19th century is always Alexis de Tocqueville. He wrote these words. It must never be forgotten that religion... Listen, this is a Frenchman talking about Americans. He's a visitor. It must never be forgotten that religion gave birth to Anglo-American society. In the United States, religion is Christian. Religion in the 19th century always meant Christianity. Not the way we use it today. In the United States, religion is therefore commingled with all the habits of the nation and all the feelings of patriotism. That's what Henry Clay said, the same thing. Whence it derives a peculiar force. Let me substitute the word Christianity as I finish. It must never be forgotten that Christianity gave birth to Anglo-American society. In the United States, Christianity is therefore commingled with the habits of the nation and all the feelings of patriotism. That flag. Whence it derives a peculiar force. And he had a lot more to say, and I don't have time to read it. But that's how we began here in America. Look at England. I forget if it's just the military in general or the Royal Air Force, whatever. They're not taking white people. They're not taking white people. They're preferring minorities than whoever else. You know, that's not what the military is all about. The military has one purpose. And I know many of you here are veterans. It don't matter what you did. There was only ever one purpose in the military, that is kill the enemy. That's it. It's the only purpose in the military, kill the enemy. Air Force, Navy, Marines, doesn't matter. Army, doesn't matter. There's only one purpose. Whether you were the cook or were you, you were logistics, whatever, it was only one purpose, kill the enemy. Now you're saying, um, well, you're the wrong color, so we won't take you. You see, if we're not already got one foot in it, It's certainly very close. It's knocking at our door here in this country, but it is in Europe, too, and around the world. If you want to turn there with me, I'll finish with this verse and take you to prayer. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning at verse 7. And I think what I'll do here is to translate as I go along, so when you're listening to it, you get the gist of what he's saying. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, and you should read the whole chapter later on. For the mystery of lawlessness, iniquity, does already work. Only he who is now preventing, only he who now letteth, will let. The one that is preventing will continue to prevent it from going so far until he be taken out of the way. And we believe this to be the Holy Spirit. Then that wicked, that's the Antichrist, then shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth. And shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish. See, not everybody goes to a happy place when they die. Because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. Listen, and for this cause, for this reason, God shall send them strong Delusion that they should believe a lie, and that they might all be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And we're at the end of the message. I don't have time to spend on that verse there, but give it a good look. Because like I just said, if we're not already one foot in, it's pounding at the door. Believe me, not Christ. Believe me, not the Bible. Believe me, not the Word of God. Believe me, believe me, believe me. I don't. But then I have the advantage of not believing any politician. And that's the truth. I signed on to follow Jesus. I strongly suggest you sign on to follow him too. For government of the people, by the people, and for the people will be as good as the people. But the people turn to the Lord. If America will turn to the Lord, if Americans will turn to the Lord, God will turn things around. That's our hope. I'd rather be saved than be president. Let's go to prayer. Father, we come to you this day, this Labor Day weekend. People are picnicking and are on vacations and having a good time. And I think that's a good thing. But many of the same people have no idea the peril we're in. So we pray today, Lord, that you would move on us. Those of us who read these verses and heard this message, who understand that God's not going to anoint a plan or a denomination 
He's going to anoint a man or a woman, a person, an Isaiah, an Ezekiel, a John. Help us, God, to understand this dynamic, this is that men has always been your program, people. You've anointed them. Help us, God, to be willing to pay the price, not only for our own salvation, but for those whom we love. When it's going to be a separation at times, even in the family gathering, wherever. Help us to be able and willing to pay for that anointing that you paid for. Help us not to leave Jerusalem in a metaphorical sense until we're anointed from on high with the power of the Holy Spirit and be able to speak the word of truth. God, we see in your word that the time is coming or it's here. A strong delusion is taking place all over the world, not just in America. People are believing lies because they have pleasure in what is not right, unrighteous. Help us, Lord. We don't deserve your mercy, but we're asking and making a petition for our country and for others who are watching for their countries too, who write to me on a regular basis to pray for their country. God, help these countries and help us as well. We need your help. We need your strength. We need your anointing. We need Jesus. We give you all the praise today, Father. We give you all the glory. And as we read in the scripture, we say it now two, almost 2,000 years later. Maranatha. Even so. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. That song comes into my mind. And we sing from time to time. When will the world see that they need Jesus? Well, they're not going to. Not until the Holy Spirit anoints you and you go and they then have that Nicodemus moment when he saw. We know that you are from God. So let's just pray as we dismiss. We have fellowship one with another. And you know I like the word we. It's not me. It's not you. It's us. Together. Stay together. We're surrounded on every side by evil. Surrounded on every side. There's only one thing to do. So, Father, we thank you and we bless you and praise you for your goodness, for your truth, that in the end, all creation will be recreated by your hands. So cause us, God, this week to love you with all of the heart, all of the soul, all of the mind, and all of our strength. Then, as we turn to one another, your word says, let your love be without hypocrisy. Help us to have a sincere love for one another. And I pray all that in Jesus' name. Can you say amen this morning? Yeah.